You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hello and welcome to Security Unlocked, a new podcast from Microsoft where we unlock insights from the latest in news and research from across Microsoft's security engineering and operations teams. I'm Nick Fillingham. And I'm Natalia Gadilla. In each episode, we'll discuss the latest stories from Microsoft security, deep dive into the newest threat intel, research, and data science. And profile some of the fascinating people working on artificial intelligence in Microsoft security. And now, let's unlock the pod. Hello, Nick. How is it going? Hello, Natalia. I'm very well, thank you. I'm very excited for today's episode. We talk with Peter Anaman, who is a return guest. Uh, he was on an earlier episode where we talked about business email compromise and some of the findings in the 2020 Microsoft Digital Defense Report. And Peter had such great stories that he shared with us in that conversation that we thought, let's bring him back and let's let's get the full picture. And wow, did we cover some topics in this conversation? I don't even know where to begin. How would What's your TLDR for this one, Natalia? Well, whenever your friends or family think about cybersecurity, this is it. One of the stories that really stuck out to me is Peter went undercover and has gone undercover actually multiple times. But in this one instance, he used the cultural context from his family history, as well as the languages that he knows to gain trust with a threat actor group and catch them out. It's incredible. He speaks so many languages and he told us so many stories about how he applies that to his day-to-day work in such interesting ways. Yeah, and I love for those of you listening to the podcast, Peter really illustrates how knowledge of multiple cultures, knowledge of multiple languages, understanding how those cultures and languages can sort of intersect and ebb and flow. Peter has used that as powerful tools in his career. And I think it's fascinating to hear those examples. And other listeners of the podcast who who do have more than one language, who do understand and have experience across multiple cultures, may be able to see some uh, some interesting opportunities for themselves in, in in cybersecurity. Maybe moving forward, I also thought it was fascinating to hear Peter talk about working to try and get funds and sort of treasures and I think gold, lit- literal gold that was taken during the Second World War and getting them back to its original owner and sort of like a repatriation effort. As you say, Natalia, these are all things that I think our friends and family think of when they hear the word cybersecurity. Oh, I'm in cybersecurity. I'm an investigator in cybersecurity. And they have these sort of visions, these Hollywood visions. This is, that's Peter. That's what he's done. And he's, he talks about it in the episode. It's a great episode. And with that, on with the pod. On with the pod. Welcome back to Security Unlocked, Peter Anneman. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me back. Well, it was a pleasure to talk to you the first time around, so I'm really excited for the second conversation. And in this conversation, we'd really love to chat about your career in cybersecurity, how you got here, um, what you're doing. So let's kick it off with a little bit of a refresher for the audience. What do you do at Microsoft and what does your day-to-day look like? So at Microsoft, I work within the legal department within a group called the Digital Crimes Unit. We are a team of lawyers, investigators, and analysts who look at protecting our customers and our online services from uh, organized crime or attacks against the system. And so we we bring, for example, civil and criminal referrals in order to do that action. On a day-by-day basis, it's very, very varied. I focus more on business email compromise at present with some 
with some assistance on ransomware attacks and looking at the devs and affiliates there, as well as looking at some attacks against the infrastructure based on automated systems. So it's kind of varied. So on the day, I could, for example, be running some crystal queries or some specialized database queries in order to look for patterns in unauthorized or illegal activity taking place in order to quickly protect our customers. At the same time, I have to prepare reports. So there's a lot of report writing just to make sure that we can articulate the evidence we have and ensure that we respect privacy and all the other rules you know, when we present the data. And also, in addition to that, uh, a big part of it is actually learning. So I, I take my time to look at trends of what's going on, learn new skills in order to know that I can adapt and automate some of the processes I do. Peter, as someone with an accent, uh, I'm always uh, intrigued by other people's accents. May I inquire as to your accent, sir? I'm, I'm hearing... <laughs> I think I'm hearing like British, I'm hearing French, there's other things there. Would you, would you elaborate for us? <laughs> yes, of course, of course. So I was born in Ghana in West Africa and spent my youth there and later on went to the UK where I learned that I had to have elocution lessons to speak like the Queen and so I had lessons and my accent became British. So, But at the same time, I'm actually a French national. Um, I've been in the French army as an officer and so that's where the French part is. Um, and throughout, I've lived in different countries doing for work. Uh, so I've learned a bit of German, a bit of Spanish on the way. I actually cheated and I looked at your um, LinkedIn profile and I see you have six languages listed. Yes. The two, the two that you didn't mention, I am embarrassingly ignorant of. Fanta and tu, Twi? twi? What, what are they? Twi and Fanti are two of the languages that are spoken in Ghana, the, the local languages. And so growing up, I always had that around me when I went to my father's village where we communicate in that language. English is kind of the national language, but within the country, people really speak their own languages. So I've picked it up now. Can I speak fluently in it? No, I've been away for too long. But if you put me there, I would understand everything they're saying. What are the roots of those two languages? Are they related at all or are they completely separate? They are related, but one... One person cannot always understand the other. If you look more broadly, you look at, for example, the African continent, Olaf, you find that there are over, from what we understand, over, what was it, 2,000 languages are spoken on the continent. So sometimes a person, say, on the East Coast doesn't understand a person on the West Coast, you know, and, and it's fascinating because, you know, when we look at cybercrime, we are facing a global environment, which is actually pretty carved out right? The physical world is still pretty segmented. And so when, for example, investigating some crimes taking place in Nigeria, well, they speak pidgin English. And so we have to try and adapt to that to understand what do they really mean when they say X or Y. And so, you know, it kind of opens our mind that as we're doing investigations, or we have to really try and understand the local reality because the internet is not just one place. And I think, you know, working for you know, Microsoft then with such an amazing diverse team, we've been able to share knowledge. So for example, in the case I mentioned, I went to my colleague in Lagos, Abuja, and he went, oh, that's what it means. And we're like, okay, great. Now it makes a lot more sense. And so we can move on. So we have this kind of richness in the team that allows us to lean on each other and, you know, sort of drive impact. But yeah, language is very important. (laughs) I was going to ask, do you have any interesting examples in which the culture was really important to cracking the case or understanding a specific part of the case that you were working? Yes. So there was one case I worked on earlier on 
which was in Lithuania. And in Lithuania, for a very long time, this group had been under investigation, but they were very good at their OPSEC and used some uh, different types of encryption and obfuscation to hide themselves. But what I learned from the chats, and when I was, this was in an IRC, it started in IRC channels and then moved out of there afterwards. But I noticed that there was a lot of Italy. There was a lot of Italian references. And my grandfather was Sicilian, so I've spent time in Italy. So I kind of understood that they traveled to Italy. So in part of the persona, I made reference to Sicily. And I just said, you know, that's where my grandfather's from. And this didn't give a name, obviously, but it kind of brought them closer, right? Because they're like, oh, yeah, we we get it. And after about two, three months, I was able to get them to send me pictures of them going on vacation in Italy. And unfortunately for them, the picture had geolocation on it. And, and also we were able to blow it up to get the background of where they were at the airport and using the camera from the airports, we were able to identify who they were and then go back to the passport, find their passport, and they got arrested a few weeks later. So, but to get that picture, to get that information required a kind of trust that was being built in the virtual world. And that comes from trying to understand the culture by teasing out, asking questions about who are you and what do you like? So that's just one example. No, no pressure in answering this question. And we'll even, we'll even cut it out of the edit if it's one you don't want to go with, <laughs> sure. if you go there. But um, I, I've heard you now talk about personas and identities and you, you just sort of hinted at it in, in the answer to the previous question. It sounds like some of the work that you have done in the past has been about creating and adopting personas in order to go and learn more information about bad actors and groups out there in, uh, in Cyberland. Is that accurate? And are you able to talk about what that role and that sort of that work look like when you're performing it? Yeah, sure. Before you have a persona, you have to understand where that persona is going to be acting, right? And I'll give you an, an example of a story. Once I had to go to LA to give a presentation, and when I got to the airport, I got a cab. And in the cab, I looked at the guys, the license plate of the, of the person, and I said, I bet you I can guess which country you were born in. It was like an African-American kind of person. He goes, impossible. No one has guessed that you will never know. I said, oh, all right. are you ready? You're from Ghana. And his mind was blown. He was like, how, how did you pick that one country? I was like, well, in your name, you have Kwesi. And I know if you're born in a country in Ghana and have Kwesi, it means you're born on Sunday. So the fact that you have your, that name there means you were born from Ghana. He goes, you're right. And so that was that. But then I said, I missed some food, the cuisine from, from, from Ghana. He goes, oh, I know a great place. It's in Compton. I was like, oh, uh, great. So I went to my restaurant, showered, got ready, tried to get, get got into a taxi because I'm not going to Compton. I was like, well, why not? I want to go to that restaurant. He goes, oh, no, no, no. I'm going to get robbed or something bad is going to happen to me. I was like, but, but, anyway, he left. He went. I had a great meal. Afterwards, I spent two hours at the restaurant because no taxi would come and pick me up. And eventually, the waitress took me to a local casino and I got a cab there and I go back. Where, where I'm going with the story is about the environment. I didn't know what Compton meant, right? So if I'd created a persona that went there who didn't know the environment, they would not succeed. They would stick out like a sore thumb. They, they would fail. So the first thing I did is always to understand what are the different protocols. If I'm looking at, for example, 
FTP or IRC or the different peer-to-peer networks, or I'm looking at NNTP and the old internet, you know, all of those work, you need different tools to work there, different ways to collect evidence and different breadcrumbs you could leave that you need to know you may be leaving. Because when you're there, you're there, right? And it's, you're leaving, you're leaving a mark. Also, some people say use proxies. Well, the problem with proxies is that someone can know you've got a proxy on because, well, there's lots of systems out there. So it's about using the system, understanding how it's interconnected so that when you show up, you show up without too much suspicion. The other thing I learned is that the personas had to, had to be kind of sad because what I found is that when they were a bit sad, like unhappy with their work and things like that, what I found, that's me, right? I found that people were more interested because people are kind by nature, right? And so when they see that you're sad, they're more likely to communicate with you. Well, well if you're too confident, I can do everything. They're like, ah, you know, that person. So I try to like psychologically look at ways to make the person as real as possible based on my experience, right? Because if it wasn't based on me, I would be caught out because I would be inventing a character that was not real. If you try to give me a trick question, because it's based on me, the answer is going to be the same. I've got the persona is me. It's just different. And so that's how I took my time to understand it. I spent a lot of time learning the internet, the protocols, you know, how does TCP IP work? When I go into an, an IC channel or when I'm looking at the peer-to-peer network and looking at the net flow, so the data which is passing from my computer outward, what other information is flowing? Because if I can see it, they can see it, right? And at the same time, I have to have the tools. So I was very fortunate to have, for example, some tools that could switch my IP address within a country like every minute. So I could really change personas and change location really rapidly. And no one would know better because I'm using different personas in different contexts, right? Now, I never lied. It's one of the, one of the clear things is that you never, I never try and do anything legal because I have to assume that law enforcement is on the other side. And that's not what I'm trying to do. So I'm not going to commit a crime. I'm not going to encourage you to do a crime. I'm just listening and just being curious about you. But then people make mistakes because they share, overshare sometimes without knowing. Maybe they're too tired or something. I have a bit of a strange question. So with the lockdown, culturally, people are expressing publicly that they feel like they're oversharing because they're all locked indoors. They have their only outlet is to share online. So have you noticed that in your work in security? Do are people oversharing in that underground world as well? Or there there hasn't been an equal shift? No, I, I actually think it's getting worse. Um and part of the reason is as more people go online, they're speaking more about how to be anonymous. So, for example, I've seen a rapid increase in BackConnect. These are residential IP addresses used as proxies. Well, because now they're communicating to each other saying, hey, we're all online and this is how you could get found out. And so actually there's more sharing going on. You know, I look at there's many more VPN services out there. It just seems they're better prepared. Now, obviously, we see a lot more, right? So, but I've definitely seen more sophistication because people spend more time online. So they, they're not walking around waiting for the bus. They're reading, they're learning, they're adapting, they communicate with each other. I've even found like cybercrime as a service. We found clusters of groups of people 
And when you look at that network, you could see they're saying, oh, I offer phishing pages or I offer VPN. They become specialized. So now you have people that say, I am just going to focus on getting you, for example, some exploits, or I'm just going to focus on getting you um, some red team work so that you can go and drop your ransomware. You know, they, they've become more specialized, actually, because they're online and they've got the time to learn. Peter, you mentioned earlier some time you spent in, I think, was it the French army? Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Is that Was that your foray into security? Did, did it begin with your career in the army or did it begin before then? Hmm. I think it started probably before then in the sense that once I left high school, I decided I wanted to study law because I wanted the system that I was going to be working in. And so I went to law school um, in the UK. And when I came out, Unfortunately, the market was not as good, so I couldn't get a job. And when I looked around at what other opportunities I had, I found there was an accelerated course to become an officer in the French army. It's a bit like West Point in the US. or And so to do that, it was basically two years. It's a two-year program condensed into four months. It was hard. So I just what no sleep? Is that what it was? Uh, like little, <laughs> Cut out all sleep, sleep, all meals. Yeah, I, I think I even well once I even had to be evacuated because I got hyper, you know, uh, hypothermia. <laughs> it was uh, sort of character building, character building. I like to call it that. Uh, but really, I think that started the path. But for the security side, was the was after that. So because of my debts from law school, I I left the army and I went to back to the UK. And there, the first job I found was to be a paralegal, photocopying accounts, bank accounts opened between 1933 and 1947. It was part of something called a survey, and it was actually to do with the Nazi gold. So what happened is that during the Second World War, a lot of pe- uh, people of Jewish origin saw that they were going to be persecuted and took their money to uh, Switzerland and put them on the numbered accounts and kept the number in their head. Well, unfortunately, some many of them, sadly, uh, were victimized. They died, and the number died with them. Well, the money stayed in the accounts, and over time, because the accounts were dormant, well, you had charges, and so the money left. And so this was something that Paul Wagner, I believe it was, started the survey to get the Swiss banks to comply and give the money back to the families as a result. So I was part of a team investigating one of the banks there, and although I started photocopying, I looked at using my military skills to be very efficient. So I was the best photocopy. <laughs> and, uh, and we were five levels on the ground. And that's what I did. And I worked hard. And then after a few weeks, I got promoted to manage the photocopiers, the people photocopying. We were a great team. And after that, they realized I was still hanging around because everyone was leaving. Because working five levels on the ground is a bit depressing sometimes. And so eventually I became a data analyst. And so now I had to do the research on the accounts to try and find someone writing in pen, oh, this number is related to this other named account or this other piece of evidence is linked to this name. And so basically for about, I think about two years, I basically, I eventually run the French team and we looked at all the French cards opened during that period. And that started the investigations and sort of trying to, think deeper into evidence and how to make it work. I didn't really think of myself as being cool before this, but I'm definitely not cool after hearing this. It's It's been validated. These stories are way beyond me. <laughs> well, no, it's just stories. <laughs> so what brought you to Microsoft then? How did you go from piracy investigation to working at Microsoft as an investigator? So 
what took place was actually my job was created by Microsoft. So back in 2000, it was Microsoft who actually saw that the internet was becoming something that could really hurt internet commerce and e-commerce overall and wanted to make sure that they could contribute to it and participate by building this capacity. And all the way through, they were one of my clients, essentially. And at some point, I realized that in my career, working for different customers, clients, is great because you learn, you still have something different. So for example, a software company is very different to a games company, is different to a publishing company, is different to a motion picture company. Although it's digital piracy, it's actually very different in many respects. And I, ha- I saw how Microsoft was investing more in the cloud at that time. And I saw that as a big opportunity to really help a bigger threat to the system, right? And when I say to the system, e-commerce, because everything was booming. This was like 2008. And so I decided that I would work for them. And it actually, they offered me the job. So I I didn't, you know, I'm very privileged to be where I am now. But they, they, the way they positioned it is that they were looking for someone to help develop systems, to map out, to create a heat map of online piracy. I was like, wow, this is a global effort. So I, that's what I came on board with. And I built actually uh, a system similar to Minority Report, whereby I got basically these crawlers that I built that would go out and visit all these pirate sites. And you'll find this fascinating because well, I found it fascinating. In some cases, <laughs> as we access the forums that were offering, you know, download sale, RapidShare was one of the companies at the time. As we shut them down, they have crawlers in the forum which will go and replace them. So we had machine or machine wars where we would shut down a URL and then they would put another one. The problem is that our system was infinite. That is, we can the machine can keep clicking. For them, they had about 10 groups of files. And so once they reached number 10, that was it. So I found a way to automate the systems. And then after that, using the the Kinect, do you remember the Xbox Kinect? Certainly. Managed to hack that. And the way it happened is that I built a map on Bing whereby the Kinect would look at my body structure. And as I moved my hand, it would drill in to a country. And when I pushed, it would create like a, a table on the window with the number of infringements, what products were offered, when was the last time it was detected. And then I could just wave it away and it would go. And then I could spin the world. It was a 3D map to go to another country and say, what are the concentrations of piracy? In this way, we had a visualized way of looking at crime as they were taking place online. And then zoom in and say, we need to spend more effort here, right? So it was a way of just getting data analytics, but in a 3D format. And so that was part of the excitement when I joined, how to do that. Another example is, I found that I read some research where it said that basically humans only spend a minute and a half on any search query. You know, in itself, it doesn't mean much, but imagine you have a timer and it's one second, two seconds, three seconds, right? You're waiting for a minute and a half, right? So 90 seconds. Let's double that. Let's say 180 seconds. Basically, let's say three minutes. It means that if you go to anyone you know and ask them, go and search for Britney Spears downloads, and you look, they'll go, they'll do the search, and they'll click a link, nothing, go next, click next, and they'll keep going. Before the three-minute mark, they'll stop. They'll change the query. They'll do something different because they wouldn't get any results, which means that when you do a search and it says it's got a million results, ah, it doesn't really matter. People are not going to go through the million. So I started to think about a problem is that 
when executives and people were saying, oh, I go on the internet and I can find bad stuff. I was like, okay, but you can do it in three minutes. How about I build a robot that will pretend to be you and go and find the infringements within that three-minute window, which is about 400 URLs, but I'm going to hit it with like send 100 queries distributed. All of a sudden, we were finding the infringements before anyone could click on it because we would report it to Google, Bing, Yandex, Baidu, and they would remove it from the, from the search results. And then we had a measurement system which would check and see if I was a human, how many seconds would it take before I found an active download? Right? You could automate it. And so we, we had a dashboard that could show that and it worked. You know, we could, we saw a decline in number of complaints because, well, it wasn't as visible. Now, if you knew where the pirate bay was, yeah, okay. But that wasn't really what we were doing. We were looking at protecting people from getting downloads which contain malware or something nefarious, right? And and so we build these systems to protect consumers, essentially. So is there a connection or maybe a community behind the work that you've done in piracy and the world of copyright? Any Any best practices that are shared with content creators who are equally concerned with a malware being in their content or just the sheer fact that someone is pirating their content? I think from a content perspective, and there are several amazing organizations out there, such as the BSA, Business Software Alliance, you have the MPAA, you know, you have the RIAA, and also IAC, the International Anti-Counterfeiting Coalition, who have just incredible guidance for their members, which are specialized. So for example, when you look at counterfeit goods, that's a very different thing to like, say, video, because video is distributed in a different way. But one thing which I think is important is that you don't just leave your your house open, you lock it with a key. Otherwise, someone will just come in and take yourself. So I think the same with content is that when we create content, we have to find a way to work not only with different organizations that are looking to protect those rights, but also assume the own responsibility of locking your door. For example, what security could you put on it, right, to maintain it? How could you work with law enforcement who are there to protect the law, right? There, I think there are different things that could be considered, but most of it really, I would say the best is to start with the industry association because they are much more specialized and can give better advice depending on the nature of the content that the person has. But, you know, when we were looking at online piracy, it wasn't just online piracy because, you know, Microsoft participated in something called Operation Pangea. This was an Interpol-driven operation where we found that a Russian organization that was distributing software for download in the millions of dollars, we took action to dismantle their payment mechanism. So Visa and MasterCard will stop the payment on their website. So they moved to prescription drugs and they started selling prescription drugs. And so for something, it's really not in Microsoft's mandate to do that, right? But what we did is that we provided the expertise and the knowledge we have to law enforcement to detect these websites. There were about 10,000 of them. And then drill down to say, what's the payment gateway? Because that's a choke point. You know, a criminal typically does what he does for the money. You know, you're not going to rob a bank if there's no money there, right? So with that in mind, they were able to really massively disrupt this organization. And that's because Microsoft looks at providing its expertise and also learning from other people's expertise, right? But to tackle this bigger problem that impacts all of us. 
Peter, I'd love to circle back to language for a sec here. And when you were talking about the languages that you speak and, and the importance of understanding culture, from your perspective, do you think there are countries, language groups, ethnic groups that are disproportionately, I'm trying to think of the most elegant way to say, not protected or not protected as well as they could because they speak a language that is you know, not as prevalent. So, you know, I looked at, you know, I'd never heard of the two the two uh, Ghanaian languages that you had on mm-hmm. your on your profile. Uh, I'm not even going to say them right, but Fant <laughs> and... Fanti and Tree. Fanti and Tree. So Perfect. native Fanti and Tree, I'm, I'm assuming there's there's hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of speakers of those yeah, two yeah, languages. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Do AI and ML systems allow for supporting people that, you know, either don't speak English or a sort of major international language? You're touching on something which is very near and dear to me because... It's a whole different conversation. And if you look at the history of language, there's a, a great group of seminars written about it. It's actually, I think I believe, someone I read somewhere that 60% of languages are actually not written, right? And yes, you can go and see Microsoft has translates between, say, 60, 100 pairs of languages and Google the same. But what about the others? What about the thousands of others? That I think there are over 6,000 languages in the world. You're right. I mean, earlier this year, if I may be personal, I'm trying to adopt a baby girl. And so I went to Ghana to try and manage the situation, just very slow. And when I was there, I just saw the reality that no, they don't have access to resources, right? Because a book costs money. And so even for AI, how would they even know what AI is? So I think there is an increasing gap which is taking place. We can't keep build, building bigger walls because it's just not going to work. We've got to be got to think bigger than that. And so one of the ideas is that when we look at some of the criminals, like I've had quite a few of them, a lot of them go to the same technical universities, for example, in West Africa. Well, why is that? Because I think they develop skills and then they leave and they can't get a job. And so they end up being pulled into a life of cybercrime. So culture is, I think, becoming an important thing is that there is a bigger and bigger divide because not as many people have access to the resources. And how can we as a community who do have access sort of proactively contribute to that? Because we can't, there's no way you can, you know, just Nigeria has 190 million people. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. The African continent has 1.2 billion. Asia, 4 billion. What's LATAM? I think it's like, is it 3 billion? No, two billion, something like that. But it's a lot of it's people lot. outside, right? <laughs> and so I think I'm glad you brought that up because I think it's a an interesting conversation that we need to develop every, even more. So just trying to distill some of that down. So are are you saying then that at least when we're looking at language, there is a greater diversity of threat actors than there are targets. The, those targets are centralized more around English speakers, but because of disproportionate opportunities in other parts of the world, we see threat actors across a number of different languages, across a number of different cultures. Yes, I, I think that's that's a uh, kind of a good summary of that. But I'll probably take it a step further and say, from my vantage point, again, you know, there are many other more brilliant people out there than me, I can only speak of what I've seen. I still find there are concentrations, right? When you look at business email compromise and you go and pick up a newspaper and say, show me all articles about BEC, the biggest crime right now in the world, 
and show me all the people who've been arrested. Guess what? They're all from one place, West Africa. Why? Because it, you look at the history of that crime, BEC, it was a ruse. Before that, it used to be called, it's all under the category of advancing fraud, but it used to be lottery scam. Oh, the Bill and Melinda Gates lottery, you've won $25 million, or so, uh, the Nigerian prince, right? Some people call it 419, which is the criminal code in Nigeria. And then it went further back. They used to send faxes. Well, a lot of people developed a culture called the Yahoo Boys, right? They call it Yahoo Yahoo. And what they do is you go on YouTube and you search for Yahoo Yahoo. You'll see them like, there's a whole culture behind that. They're dancing. They're saying, this is my Monday car, my Tuesday car. And because they're making money and their communities are not, the community helps them because they get money. The stolen money is shared. And so now it becomes harder to break that because it becomes part of a culture. And so that's why we see a lot more there, I think, than, for example, in the US or in Russia or in other countries. It's because I think there was, there's a, they have this kind of lead way that they've been doing it for a lot longer and have a better sense of how to be sly. It sounds like the, the principles of reducing crime apply just as generally in the cyberspace as they do to in the the non-cyberspace, whereas if you can give opportunities and you know um, lucrative opportunities to people to utilize the skills that they've developed both sort of in an orthodox or unorthodox fashion, <clears throat> then they're going to put those skills to good use. But if you if you train them up and then don't give them any way of using those skills to to go, you know, make a living in a in a positive sense, they're they're going to turn to other other avenues. Sounds like in, in in parts of West Africa, that is business email compromise. Right, it is. And if I could just add two things there. One is that, you know, when I started looking at how to address cyber online criminality, I have to look at the physical part of it. And in the physical world, there's actually, I call them neighborhoods. You have good neighborhoods and bad neighborhoods, right? There's some neighborhoods you go to, no one's going to pickpocket you. Right, everyone's got a nice car or whatever. The other neighbors you go to, and there's some shady people in the corner, probably selling drugs or something. Yeah, I'm I'm being very simplistic, but I'm just trying to say there are differences in neighborhoods in the physical world, and those need to be looked at as well. Because even if you gave education a job to, to someone in a bad neighborhood, because of the environmental pressure, they may not be able to leave that neighborhood because they could be pressured into it. Online is the same. I found that you see there are clusters of criminal activities that happen. And even though it's virtual, they're interconnected. It's like, like two or three levels, they know each other mostly. And so we can have this kind of, we have to think more holistically, I suppose I'm trying to say, Nate, that it, we also have to look at the neighborhood and how do you make sure, for example, that neighborhood, they have a sports field or the streets are clean because it makes you feel good, right? There's, there are other environmental factors that I think we may need to consider in a more holistic way. We'll, we can move much faster that way because there are different factors uh, which contribute to this. So, Peter, I honestly feel like we could keep chatting for the next four hours, but we're, 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 we've already eaten up a, a lot of your time and we've covered a lot of ground. I'd love to circle back one final time to, to language and really sort of ask you, is, and maybe it's not language, but is there something that you sort of feel particularly passionate about 
in your career at Microsoft, what you've done so far, what you're working on and what you hope to do moving forward is language and opening up accessibility through language and other sort of cultural diversity. You, you spoke a lot about that in the last sort of you know, 45 minutes. Is that, is that something that you're personally uh, invested in and would like to work more on in the future? And, and if not, what other areas are you, are you looking forward to in the future? It's, it's absolutely something I'm, I'm very passionate about. And within Microsoft, as an example, the company has invested a lot in diversity and inclusion and equity. And it ended last year, but I was the president of the Africans and Microsoft Employee Resource Group, for example, which has close to a thousand people. And all of it is about helping, working in a two-way street where we help our community who are at times new in country and so don't understand the cultural differences and how do we help them better, not integrate, but be themselves and also allow others to understand that they may be a minority, but there's so much richness to that diversity and how it makes teams stronger. Because then you're not all looking through the same lens and you can bring in, you know, different perspectives about it. So I'm absolutely invested in that, not just here in the US, but also, you know, the African continent. And and I'm very fortunate to be working in a company that's actually pushing me to do that. You know, the company is, is doing amazing things when it comes to diversity and inclusion. And yes, there's room to be made, but at least they're active. Going back really quickly to what you mentioned about language and AI, when we look at the internet, the internet is still zeros and ones. So when you look at machine learning models, a lot of it is looking for like over 250 signals, right, in in one site. And it's not just about the language, it's about different languages, computer code and human code. And so the machines are bringing those two together, which can help better secure platforms. And just as we wrap up here, is there anything you want to plug, any resources, any groups that you'd like to share with our audience? I think for me, you know, always try and keep updated on security. So, you know, the Microsoft Security Bulletin is a a great source for uh, up-to-date information. Also, I think there are many other organizations that people can search for and reach out to me on LinkedIn up. If you're not a bad guy or girl, (laughs) we can actually, you know, I try to mentor as many people in our industry because uh, together we become stronger. So do reach out if you want to. Awesome. Thank you for that, Peter. It was great having you on the show again. And I can honestly say we'd be happy to have you back. It was infinitely fascinating. Thank you very much for the invitation again. And uh, it was a pleasure participating. By the way, wir könnten mit einander Deutsch sprechen. If you ever want there you to. Go. <laughs> <laughs> Tally, I didn't know you speak Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had a great time unlocking insights into security from research to artificial intelligence. Keep an eye out for our next episode. And don't forget to tweet us at MSFT Security or email us at securityunlocked at Microsoft.com with topics you'd like to hear on a future episode. Until then, stay safe, stay secure. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, join us as we dig deep into the XZ backdoor with its finder, Andreas Freund, and senior security researcher, Thomas Rochia. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.